Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 124 of the Energy Talks podcast. And today I'm going to be talking to Werner Antweiler. He's uh, an economist, director of the Souter School of Business, Prediction Markets, associate professor and chair, strategy and business economics division, and chair in international trade policy at the Univers University of British Columbia. So welcome to the interview, uh, Werner. Hello, Markham. It's a pleasure talking to you again. Well, I always enjoy our conversations. In fact, the last one we had was six months ago, episode 58, which was Buckle Up, the Global Energy System is Being Disrupted. And it was all about uh, Peter Schumpeter's, uh, sorry, Joseph Schumpeter's uh, theories of long wave innovation. And, and you explained how we are at the beginning of the sixth long wave and we can expect a tremendous amount of change in the global economy and the global energy system. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, before we get into this, um, what do you, you're, a, you're an economist. You teach at the University of British Columbia. When you talk to your fellow economists, does this topic come up? And is there, if it does... What's the tenor of the conversation? Like, is everybody kind of agreed that this is, you know, a, a seminal time in in our history, and and the you know the disruption and change is happening very rapidly at the global level? Yeah, I think there is a broad sense of among whoever has studied innovation that innovation isn't just a smooth process, but it actually it does happen in waves. It does happen uh, at stages where it gets accelerated, and uh, so that is not a theme that is um, uh, alien to economists uh, when we uh, talk about innovation in general, but now very specifically about energy and the transformation that we have been seeing uh, accelerating in the last little while. Right. So I want to run a hypothesis by you. And and you can tell me whether I'm on the right track. I'm I'm all wet. Just let me give it to you. Here's a, Here it is. The accelerating energy transition plus the economic shock of the COVID-19 pandemic, plus the energy shock and crisis created by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, has essentially triggered a global economic transformation as countries and regions dramatically increase investment in clean energy industry and supply chains. And I'll give you one example, uh, a Reuters story from a couple of months ago uh, noted that automate, global automakers and their supply chains will be spending $1.2 trillion by 2030 in the switch to electric vehicles. And in my uh, journalism, I'm seeing that repeated over and over again at the local level, the regional level, the national level. 
in North America, in Europe, we're seeing it in, in Asia Pacific. And so what do you think of my hypothesis? Am I on the right track here? I, I think so, because what we are seeing that is happening is a combination of drivers that all have now culminated in accelerating a trend. Uh, namely, um, the importance of energy security has suddenly really uh, come into focus. And that is all coming from the events of 2022 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Suddenly we realize that uh, we're in a much more vulnerable world where we have to invest more in domestic energy security, number one. Number two, climate change. Uh, we, we need to see a transformation in two broad areas, the electrification of mobility and the move to uh, renewable energy and increasingly also electricity storage, which is uh, still a big frontier that hasn't really developed yet, but needs to develop. Uh, plus, and, and that is, of course, coming out of the recession uh, of uh, COVID uh, that we had in 2020 and uh, now really um, um, trying to get back into uh, uh, a situation where we, we need to spend on infrastructure uh, and catching up to uh, some of what hasn't happened uh, in 2020, uh, which is really um, uh, boosting our economies. And all of this comes together uh, to, to create a condition that is con conducive to a lot new investment. And that is uh, fostered by government policy, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, but also policies here in Canada, like uh, carbon pricing in the European Union, uh, the transition to electric vehicle that is now mandated in some places to happen by 2035. All that is combining uh, and uh, creating new conditions, super conducive to a lot of rapid investment. Well, let's talk about uh, a couple of examples here. And I want to get um, your take on industrial strategy and policy. I've done a number of interviews uh, with economists about this uh, in, in uh, recent episodes. And it seems to me that you know, prior to 1980, um, industrial policy was practiced uh, all over the world. Korea practiced it, China, Japan, the United States. And basically what it was, was setting up national champions in various industries and then protecting them from competition. Could be, you know, tariffs were a popular policy tool to do that. And then along came, you know, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School and the move to more market-oriented policies and this idea that government needed to get out of the way, you know, and, and let the private sector do it. And a lot of that industrial policy either went away or was blunted and the capacity inside government uh, to do industrial policy, but particularly in Canada, uh, disappeared, uh, basically retired. And now we're seeing all of a sudden, I mean, you know, we know that China has, has used industrial policy to get to, to stimulate their clean energy industry since 19, the 1990s. And we know that Korea has done the same kind of thing. And now all of a sudden, out of the blue, I mean, this is, you know, in, in the North American context, Biden introduces the U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, $369 billion uh, by 2030. And on top of that, hundreds of billions of dollars in other related programs, like CHIPS program, there's a CHIPS uh, Act, and there's there's all kinds of other. I mean, it, I've seen various estimates from 600 billion to 800 billion to maybe even a trillion dollars that's available through various uh, American uh, programs that are designed for industrial policy. And that seems to be 
it's not just the fact that the U.S. that the government capital is now entering the market. It's that it leverages private capital as well. Is that really key here? Well, first of all, industrial policy never went away worldwide. Um, there were uh, different periods, and especially in North America, when different governments set different priorities and sometimes de-emphasized industrial policy, but it never really went away because uh, in addition to federal governments, there are also state governments and provincial governments that all had their very unique industrial policies and always had local champions. So uh, it, um, it sort of refocused emphasis on uh, more specific industries that sometimes were uh, more uh, championed by local governments, uh, provincial or state governments. And so in that sense, um, now looking at what's happening uh, more at the federal level, uh, the United States has had industrial policy focused on um, repatriating manufacturing industries that they considered vital. And, and that is in part what the CHIPS Act and others are doing now, trying to make sure that the United States and, of course, uh, allies don't lose the ability to produce the technology that we need uh, for the future and don't rely on partners that may or may not be as trustworthy as we think uh, in the past. So industrial policy plays a big role. Uh, it has always been present in the European Union, uh, where national governments, they always had their local champions. Uh, it has been present in China. It has been present in virtually any other country, uh, except uh, North America went through these ups and downs of industrial policy because we changed our political directions uh, more sharply than uh, what we have seen, say, in the European Union. And that is uh, part of the political process. But when we look at industrial policy today, um, there is a leveraging effect that you alluded to, which is quite right. Uh, governments actually set the tone uh, for certain directions. For example, the electrification of mobility uh, that is sometimes uh, promulgated by policies like phasing out uh, combustion engines by 2035 uh, for new sales. And, and that, of course, triggers new investment in the private sector because now the automakers have to invest. Or uh, when we're looking for uh, renewable energy, if you want to promote that, then, of course, uh, uh, some of the money comes from governments or through uh, electric utilities, but it's also uh, generating a lot of investment in the private sector to actually install uh, you know, uh, facilities uh, from independent power producers that then go on the market simply because the conditions are right. So in that sense, um, when government sets a tone, they can do through their own spending, but they can also say it's regulation. Either way, it will trigger a significant amount of new uh, investment from the private sector. And uh, the concentration that we see now, especially in the auto sector that you mentioned uh, as one of the, the dominant ones, is, is really coming from that policy uh, where we're looking towards phasing out uh, combustion engines over you now the, the 10, 15 year period uh, that uh, is now prescribed in some jurisdictions like the European Union or Canada already in the United States. Uh, it's um, maybe a little slower, but it will follow too. Now, I want to use an example that is uh, close to home for me. Uh, I've mentioned this before in, in other episodes um, that it, about a, you know last spring, uh, my wife and I switched over to a heat pump for our home. And while we were trying to find a supplier who could do the installation, and uh, we had to go through, check out a number of them locally because many couldn't get, couldn't get heat pumps. And I was interviewing Brian Livingston from CD Howe uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about the how to lower emissions from Canadian buildings. And he said, look, uh, the rough estimate is between now and 2030, we have to install 600,000 heat pumps per year. We're only 
installing 20,000. So if we were to hit those numbers, the 600,000, we would have to build, we're going to have to build some, we have to either get it from someplace or we're going to have to put together maybe the plants to manufacture those. And it seems like if you look through the various supply chains attached to clean energy industries over and over again, there's an there's there's opportunity today, an opportunity in the near future to marshal investment and industrial policy and build those industrial clusters and that maybe we didn't have that opportunity five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but we have it today. And am I correct in that, that things are in flux and there are opportunities today for to build industry that Canada hasn't had and wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, I think I refer to that as a scaling up problem because uh, when we're looking at a transition that is happening or needs to happen, uh, then the question is, where are the supplies coming from? Because um, if you look back historically, there is a certain demand, say, for heat pumps that has been relatively stable that hasn't really accelerated to the same extent. Now, suddenly, uh, we have a huge uh, increase in demand. And of course, the suppliers aren't ready for that. Uh, that's pretty much what we have seen during COVID, when a lot of people switch from spending on services to spending on goods, and uh, which actually included me buying a heat pump uh, exactly at that time. Uh, but uh, uh, the the problem remains that uh, once uh, a lot of people are changing towards, um, uh, for example, installing heat pumps, we need that infrastructure. And the current suppliers, uh, they don't have the ability to scale up that quickly. So. Also, we want to uh, rely on uh, in increasingly maybe domestic producers. That means where do we build that infrastructure domestically that can service that market? Um, that often involves, of course, investment from those producers elsewhere, like in Japan or Germany that are already producing heat pumps, uh, and then uh, set up shop in locations where demand is really accelerating so that they can shorten the supply chain, rely more on local uh, manufacturing ability and local resources uh, to make it happen. So that is uh, what I see as uh, the new frontier where uh, the manufacturers that have the expertise need to look at setting up shop in more locations simply as the demand increases and they need to focus on uh, serving the, the market locally and not just by exporting to those markets. Uh, so we'll see a lot more uh, international trade that might be happening, but also uh, a foreign direct investment that needs to support that because we need to have production in more locations simply to satisfy the demand and scale up production to the level that we need. Yeah, this sounds like a custom made, uh, it's custom made for industrial strategy and policy. And it, it seems to me, and I've interviewed uh, Dr. Bentley Allen from Johns Hopkins University, who specializes in industrial uh, strategy and policy. And, and his argument is that uh, it needs to be a collaboration between governments, both federal and provincial. It needs the private sector. It needs other needs academia, folks, you know, people like yourself, Werner. It needs uh, other stakeholders from society to come together and identify opportunities. So if we're talking heat pumps, we want to manufacture heat pumps in, in Canada because we, we have a tremendous need for them now and we don't want to buy them from unstable or unfriendly regimes. So we want to manufacture them we want to onshore or reshore them or friendshore them, uh, as uh, as uh, we say these days. Uh, so 
you need a strategy and you need to get all the actors coordinated and then government can say, okay, well, look, we here, we're going to put in place the, the policy. We're going to put in place the regulatory regime. We're going to put, we're going to make uh, capital available, you know, funds available in order to get this going. We'll have, maybe we have to de-risk some new technologies. We'll, we'll do that and, and take a strategic approach to it. And <laughs> Canada is really bad at this. I mean, it just, at least from what I can see, we're not very good. And it, it, it we're letting opportunities slip through our fingers. Now, am, am I, you know, out to lunch here or, or am I, what do you think? Well, it's of course always very complicated. Um, and our Canada always isn't the shadow of the United States, simply because we're such a small economy compared to our big neighbor south of the border. And uh, so when we're looking at new investment, um, investors from abroad are going to look at where is the larger market. And so they're looking at the United States first. Uh, so for Canada to punch uh, at the same uh, level as the United States and attracting investment, uh, we need to make the case that uh, Canada has attractive location advantages and we can serve the U.S. market from Canada as well. And uh, so industrial policy isn't so much as pumping subsidies into that sector, but really making conditions conducive for investors to say, hey, this is a great place to serve all of the North American market. And that means reducing barriers, reducing frictions that still exist in our trade relations with the United States and uh, Mexico as well. Uh, so we have just had the three leaders actually meet uh, and discuss some of the challenges. And we know how challenging it can be, say, in the renewable energy sector, because, for example, Mexico has put up now, now new barriers. Uh, so reducing barriers, uh, reducing frictions is what um, the federal government needs to be focusing on. Uh, other than that, um, in terms of attracting investment, uh, it's a local demand. Now, if we can leverage our demand quicker than the United States can, then we are creating conditions conducive to market entry in Canada first and grow from that base. So in that sense, being a leader than a laggard when it comes to key policies, uh, for example, creating a demand for heat pumps, creating demand for electric vehicles, that can help us attract the infrastructure here in Canada uh, before it's actually setting up shop in the United States because that's a larger market. So we have to play our advantages uh, and that means being the leader can allow us to, to build that infrastructure here in Canada quicker before it's happening south of the border. Uh, but that is where industrial policy is really um, needs to be hand in hand with uh, the regulatory policy, uh, in particular when it comes to climate change and, and carbon pricing and uh, uh, the regulations that are at the municipal level, for example, putting heat pumps into the building code or um, putting insulation into the building code and all the other things that actually go hand in hand with uh, creating the demand conditions. Um, but where I think industrial policy can be uh, problematic is when governments start to pick winners and say, oh, we're going to focus on one company or another and um, and, and try to uh, to subsidize um, um, one branch of a technology or one other branch of a technology when they should be really neutral uh, and, and not pick winners. So we have to be very mindful that um, when government is at its best, it's actually building infrastructure. Um, and, and that is, um, for example when it comes to EVs, uh, not picking which company uh, should set up shop in Canada, but making sure that there's EV charging infrastructure and we remove the frictions that exist uh, to uh, propelling the adoption of EVs forward, which really means uh, reducing uh, the, the frictions that exist with infrastructure and uh, charging infrastructure in particular. 
There's another angle to this that I want to pursue with you, uh, Werner. I, I interviewed economist Glenn Hodgson of the C.D. Howe Institute about uh, the Alberta uh, oil and gas industry. And he wrote an intelligence memo in which he argued that the oil and gas industry globally now has entered into a mature stage. It's not, it's not, it, it, it understands that peak oil demand is coming in 2030. It, it, it's prioritizing, instead of prioritizing uh, uh, growth of supply and production, it's prioritizing returning, uh, increasing returns to shareholders through dividends and, and buybacks. Uh, share buybacks. And his argument is that the money that's going is being diverted to shareholders is being taken from uh, capital expenditures that it would normally, you know, it would invest in new wells or expanding plant up in the Alberta oil sands or whatever it happens to be. And so investment levels in Alberta in particular are, are have already dropped and they're going to continue to drop uh, because of because of this maturing of the industry and then looking ahead to shrinking demand sometime after after 2030. And I guess the point I'm getting at here is that we need to replace that capital from someplace. We need we need if we're going to create jobs and new industries that we need to be thinking today of the industry uh, where that where we're going to what industries we're going to stimulate to attract that capital to create the jobs that will be lost as industries like oil and gas mature and employment declines and capital investment declines. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I, I certainly appreciate uh, the issue with uh, investment needs to proceed at a certain level to actually create jobs because uh, these are the opportunities of the future that we are creating, uh, but it will involve sectoral shifts. Uh, but when it comes to uh, oil companies, some of them are already reinventing themselves as energy companies. Uh, some of them have already shifted towards natural gas because that has been uh, a source of growth. And uh, so that is a diversification of the fossil fuel portfolio. But beyond that, uh, companies uh, located in Europe, uh, especially uh, Norwegian's uh, state-owned company, uh, and they're already diversifying much more into uh, renewable energy because, hey, it's energy. Uh, they know how to do big projects and know how to do uh, these kinds of things. And so they're shifting investment into um, offshore wind and, and other things that will be generating uh, the energy of the future. Uh, they are looking at energy storage, uh, all areas where a significant amount of new investment needs to happen. So for companies uh, located in Canada in particular that are uh, very attached to their location in Alberta, uh, given the oil sands, uh, they are also looking at, well, what is the, the future holding for us uh, that could involve hydrogen? That is a theme that is very um, uh, much talked about in Alberta because here is a way to decarbonize the fuel. So if I take natural gas out of the ground and I can split the, the, the black carbon away from the hydrogen, I have one clean fuel and I have black carbon. Um, so turquoise hydrogen is a very appealing kind of uh, look forward for this industry because they know how to do these big projects and they can uh, look at uh, hydrogen as um, an energy carrier and an energy storage uh, of the future uh, that actually fits very well into the existing infrastructure, uh, including uh, transporting uh, hydrogen through pipelines, for example. So all of this actually means that industries like the energy companies 
in Alberta have to look at what the future holds and where we are moving to. And that doesn't mean we're going to lose jobs. It just means these jobs will look different. They will require different types of investments, branching out and reinventing what it means to supply energy. Because one thing we know for sure, energy we still all need. We can't run our economy without energy. And uh, but it will uh, become a different portfolio of activities. And that is what uh, energy companies will look towards, uh, namely uh, redefining what it means to be an energy company. See, I'm not sure that Canada is doing that. Uh, or can Canadian energy companies are doing that, Werner. And I'll explain what I mean. Um, I, uh, I subscribe to Equinor. That's the Norwegian now uh, state-owned uh, uh, oil company. I subscribe to their press releases and I get a steady stream of them. And it's quite amazing uh, when you when you pay attention how much they're uh, they're shifted over into clean energy. Uh, you know, they're into not just carbon capture, but they're into uh, they just announced a, a big investment, a, a partnership with a a battery company. They're, so they're getting into stationary storage. As you mentioned, they're doing all sorts North of, I mean, yeah, literally, literally offshore wind all over the world, uh, not just, uh, just in Europe. I mean, they're incredibly innovative and we're seeing other European, the European oil majors are leading that, that pivot for sure. Canadians ones are not the big ones. The, the big five uh, in Canada, the Suncor, Sonova, CNRL, Imperial oil, uh, those uh, those ones of those Suncor is the only one that invests in startups, you know, like uh, Intercam and uh, uh, Lands Attack that makes sustainable aviation fuel. And their investments aren't big, you know, 50 million here, 50 million there. So this is not a pivot. This is they're dipping their toe in the water to see if there are opportunities that maybe strength, you know, they look good down the road. But for the most part, and I know this because I've I've talked to insiders within the industry for the most part, their response to the prospect of declining demand is to drive down costs and to become a competitive barrel. They all think they've all modeled, they've all modeled out to 2050, and they believe that they can be cost and carbon competitive in a 25 million barrel a day market by 2050. That would be 25% of the current uh, global oil consumption. So rather than pivot, the Canadian oil companies are saying, "Nope, that is, we're stick. We're going to just get better at what we do, and we're going to we're going to do the status quo more efficiently and at lower cost. And that's how we're that's that's our future. That seems to me to be a risky proposition. Yeah, I I tend to agree uh, because there are two things that um, are being conflated here by the industry. One is the notion that. Well, there's still going to be demand for oil in the world that is still growing with population. And uh, to the extent that Canadian oil producers can supply the Western world with a secure supply, uh, maybe they can grow market share. And so the idea is by lowering costs, they can grab more market share than they totally uh, uh, today have. Um, and um, and so in that sense, it's uh, it's a focus on, well, we know that business really well, we can we can just grab more market share. I think that is the illusion that grabbing more market share is going to be easy because it assumes that the other parties aren't going to do the same. And my sense is they're all going to be doing the same because nobody wants to lose market share. And uh, some of the lowest cost oil is still going to be the lowest cost oil coming out of the Middle East. 
Um, and as long as that remains uh, the strongest competitor, uh, there's just no way um, that you can get the kind of cost savings that they uh, would need to actually uh, grab a larger market share. So I'm really dubious about that that notion that uh, they they can grow the market. Uh, what really remains then at the end of the day is that um, other parts of the market are shifting and they may lose their share of, of that new market by not investing early enough and aggressively enough to actually be uh, market uh, uh, significant market participants and not just uh, like uh, me too, uh, too late. And uh, that is where I see some of the dangers uh, where um, if uh, there is over-reliance on the notion that, well, cost-cutting and market growth, market share growth uh, can uh, can uh, keep us profitable, that at some point the market's going to transition a whole lot faster than they may have anticipated. And that is the point where they're going to lose out and they're going to be uh, just like BlackBerry uh, one day uh, where um, the market has shifted underneath their feet and they were on top for a while. And then suddenly things go uh, very differently, very quickly. And uh, then the big question is, how will they reinvent themselves at that point when they have missed the opportunity to build the foundations of being players in that new market? Well, let's pursue this one a little bit more because there's an, a related issue here, and that is the allocation of public capital. So the uh, the oil sands have created the uh, Pathway Alliance, net zero by 2050 Pathway Alliance, and to decarbonize by 2050. And the bill is going to be $75 billion to do that, according to them. And they want government to pay two-thirds of that, so about $50 billion. That's a lot of money. It's a lot, particularly in a country the size of Canada, that, that is a tremendous amount of money. And right now, uh, as I speak on, uh, it's uh, January 11th, 2023, there's a huge controversy, big political blow-up in uh, Alberta, over the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's suggestion on Monday that Alberta, the government of Alberta, should pay a lot more of that $50 billion, and the industry should put, put pay a lot more as well. They should pick up part of the share. So here's the question. They want $50 billion. If there's there's scarce public capital available, there isn't we just can't crank up the printing presses and and print as much money as we need. We have scarce resources and we have to allocate it really smartly. And by allocating it to the mature industries that are facing secular decline in the very near future, as opposed to investing it in growth industries that are the, you know, the clean energy, the clean, then their supply chains and, and the, you know, that, those sorts of things. That seems to me to be a fundamentally strategic question, Werner, that we should be grappling with. And I'm not hearing the conversation in Canada about that. Yeah. So the big question, of course, always is where should public funds be spent? And as an economist, uh, I'm always reluctant to spend money, public money on, on companies and their profitability, essentially, uh, rather than on uh, what is clearly infrastructure. So where there is the strongest case for government spending is where it's uh, um, infrastructure that really serves uh, um, uh, all of us uh, from public transit to, to hospitals, that is infrastructure. Uh, but when it's very specific to an industry and only serves to, to help bring down the cost of one industry, um, that is uh, usually not well spent uh, because essentially the market forces should decide where uh, we're sourcing from. And if you are uh, artificially inflating the value of a, 
uh, of an industry or make it more profitable by subsidizing it, uh, that's going to really, and at the end of the day, come uh, back to hurt us. And we have seen it with so many failed subsidy schemes uh, in the airline uh, industry in Canada, for example, where uh, ultimately uh, Bombardier actually uh, didn't do so well and was bought out by Airbus, essentially. So we shouldn't uh, stem against the tide that is already happening by, by uh, redirecting funds that could be much better spent on infrastructure and uh, and other crucial uh, uh, services that we need in our country. Uh, when it comes to uh, carbon capture, for example, um, that is a cost that ultimately needs to be paid for by the users of uh, fossil fuels. And so this cost needs to be passed on. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think that these cost savings, well, they can happen without uh, significant subsidies because the higher costs from increased carbon capture uh, ultimately will add to the cost of fossil fuels coming out of Canada. And it makes it less competitive rather than more competitive. So uh, the, the notion here is that um, these investments need to come uh, from the sector themselves. Uh, that is not money that uh, should come from the federal government or the provincial governments for that matter. In fact, any royalties that are coming that should be sequestered the way Norway has done to build up our sovereign wealth front. So these costs uh, that are coming from uh, carbon capture and, uh, and the related um, activities uh, that are environmental in nature, uh, they need to be passed on to the consumers of that product. Uh, anything else makes very little sense. And essentially, it's um, uh, misusing public funds to prop up an industry that is essentially in, in secular decline long term, uh, plateauing right now, but eventually will be in decline. Now, I want to talk about a related subject. Uh, and this is something that you and I had a conversation about in, uh, several months ago. And that is when governments uh, de-risk innovations and new technologies. And you mentioned four risks, and I'll, I'm not sure that I can remember them all, but there's political risk, capital risk, technology risk, and market risk. I guess I did remember them. And so, and we and we had that conversation in the context of Mariana Mozzicato's work around the entrepreneurial state. And the, so basically the, the, the state uh, uh, subsidizes uh, uh, scientific research, uh, innovation, you get a technology, it comes out of the laboratory, then you go into maybe a demonstration project. Uh, still, it's too early for the private sector to be really investing in a big way. You get to a pilot project, well, now you're getting more in in interest from the private sector. And the state keeps funding that until it's at the point where it's basically being de-risked and then private capital floods in, commercializes it, and you have investments in plants and supply chains and, and all of that. And then, of course, you make that money back, presumably, uh, when they pay taxes, when workers and, and companies pay taxes. And this, again, is a case of there, there's limited tax, there's limited capital available, public capital available. And would we be better off spending it on infrastructure? Would we be spending better spending it up propping up, you know, uh, industries like oil and gas, or should we be looking at the innovation infrastructure and saying how can we help de-risk Canadian innovations that could get a, a foothold in domestic and international markets that then could become significant players and uh, generators of tax revenue and and jobs and, and so on. And so what's your take on the, the whole, you know, government capital de-risking innovation? Yeah, it's, uh, of course, an important part too. I mentioned um, infrastructure because that is one of the really central activities for any government. And because we all rely on infrastructure to actually uh, carry out economic activity. And the 
infrastructure needs to be at a level that actually facilitates what we need to do from uh, transit to bridges to whatever. Uh, but um, when it comes to innovation, we have to really uh, keep in mind that uh, there are things that government can do and things that government cannot do. What government can do is de-risk early stages because that is where companies are the most vulnerable. It's sort of the, the famous valley of death for, for new innovations uh, and uh, getting um, um, uh, new technologies to a stage where there is a demonstration of a proof of concept. For example, with hydrogen, uh, we see there is now some some need to actually uh, demonstrate um, the uh, ability uh, to um, uh, to develop uh, these technologies and the related infrastructure from uh, uh, hydrogen storage, hydrogen excellence. There's a lot of ancillary technologies. Uh, there uh, is a need to actually help these um, young industries uh, mature. But at the same time, it's important for governments then to get out of the way of um, then uh, companies and industries are much better sorting out their own activities based on sound market principles and uh, where government has uh, not so much a role to play. Uh, unless there is a compelling uh, case of there is a natural monopoly or something else that actually uh, uh, requires the government to remain involved. Uh, for example, we have... Uh, um, uh, electric utilities are natural monopoly. So there is a, a continuing role of governments. But in most instances, uh, government should get out of the way um, past this early stage. And uh, when it comes to de-risking, uh, other governments are doing the same. For example, the United States and the European Union have all uh, been uh, helping young companies with, for example, um, loans and loan guarantees and, and those kinds of mechanisms to, to bridge the early years. Um, governments should not be um, in the business of choosing technological winners and only putting money on one technology. Uh, so governments are very poor at making those those choices. Uh, so they should be uh, looking at the, the early stages where they can help. Um, we see relatively broad instruments like loan guarantees, but without actually getting too closely involved in, in picking which of these technologies will win out. Some will lose and some will, uh, will mature and, and continue. Um, but um, uh, it's uh, necessary for governments to to mostly create the right conditions and being uh, supportive in early stages with loan guarantees, for example, um, but uh, not uh, being a partners, long-term partners in technologies um, because uh, there's no guarantee uh, governments, especially our small Canadian government compared to the big US government is going to be able to be a player in all of these areas. So. Uh, being very careful in how we spend scarce public resources is important. Uh, De-risking some uh, new ventures, uh, but mostly with an eye towards um, uh, only getting things to the, the here's a proof of concept, it's working, let's move on, uh, and and um, and not devoting uh, too many of our uh, precious resources to uh, single projects. And we have um, had significant investment in the past. Uh, for example, um, uh, the federal government and the uh, government of Saskatchewan have financed carbon capture at the Boundary Dam project. Very, very expensive. Uh, you can do it once, but you cannot repeat it. Uh, this technology either shows it's mature or one has to move uh, move on. Right. That was a, that was a, a, it was either a billion or a billion and a half uh, dollar project, uh, which takes sucks up a lot of a lot of public capital. You know, I, I had the opportunity um, before Christmas, uh, Warner, to travel to Vancouver and interview uh, five companies that are in the hydrogen space there, and uh, four of them were working primarily in the hydrogen demand space. So they're, uh, you know, Westport, for instance, is uh, is uh, building 
uh, and modifying internal combustion engines to, uh, for class eight vehicles, you know, freight trucks uh, that can run on 100% hydrogen. And uh, HTEC uh, is a company that had a putting in a pilot project in Prince George in Northern British Columbia, where logging trucks and freight trucks will be able to pull into a refueling station and they will be able to refuel a combination 50-50 of diesel and hydrogen. They'll have a, you know, a small electrolyzer there that will use uh, uh, clean electricity plus water. It'll make, it'll make hydrogen. And uh, at this point, the, the engines can run on a combination of 50-50. And it seems like, you know, some government money has been in there uh, helping at the early stage of, of that development. And we'll see whether I'm sure there, I have no doubt that there will be more funds that will be applied to those companies. But it seems like those are opportunities where we, you know, we Vancouver has a, a cluster, industrial cluster of these, of, of hydrogen related businesses. Uh, Edmonton is building a cluster of hydrogen supply companies. So they're looking at, you know, making hydrogen from, from natural gas, blue hydrogen, and then eventually transitioning to green hydrogen using electrolyzers. And it's those industrial clusters that seem to have a lot of a lot of potential uh, because not only do they create a lot of jobs, but there's tremendous efficiencies in having those those uh, companies clustered together like that and and potential for growth. That does seem to me to be a, a legitimate use of, of government capital to foster that the growth of a cluster. Yes. Uh, so agglomeration has always been uh, a key objective of governments that they wanted to nurture and foster. And uh, there is a case we made, um, economists call this external economy of scale that we uh, observe when uh, clusters form. And uh, this is basically the ability of the participants in this industry to learn from each other and develop common infrastructure and, and share uh, common talent and uh, intellectual property and, and, and resources. So this is a notion uh, that um, is very well understood by provincial and federal governments that uh, fostering innovation clusters is uh, conducive to building these new technologies and industries. And there are some developing. Uh, Vancouver is certainly one. Um, there are a couple of companies also working on turquoise hydrogen. I mentioned Fortisi in this connection and others. Uh, so there are uh, um, uh, these new technologies that um, need to develop. Government needs to be careful how they get involved. Um, that is by setting aside um, um, uh, space and land for developing clusters, uh, by offering also to buy uh, early early technologies. Uh, so creating some demand for these new products um, uh, or, or helping to find buyers for these technologies uh, through negotiating contracts with, for example, foreign, foreign governments as uh, the uh, prime minister has been in negotiations with the, the German government, for example, um, most recently in uh, in Atlantic Canada. So there are some, some ways to help bootstrap the industry uh, by governments playing um, the way of door opener, uh, not necessarily putting a lot of money up front into these technologies, but helping companies develop um, you know, the early stages where, well, there's some demand that they can satisfy that um, is being uh, satisfied uh, because government actually puts out a tender for, for example, for uh, for these products. Uh, but again, uh, government should be very careful not to pick winners and they shouldn't put all eggs in one basket in that way. Uh, there should be relatively neutral in terms of which company will eventually emerge from this, but they should be creating the right conditions and the right support infrastructure uh, to help nurture uh, these uh, new companies and new technologies to develop. 
Now, we started out this interview at the global level, and then we've uh, progressively uh, zeroed in on various aspects, various industries. We talked about heat pumps and buildings. We've talked about regions, you know, like British Columbia and, and Alberta with hydrogen. But let's pull back again now to the global level. So if we agree that there is, that the energy transition and all these shocks have triggered uh, a rush of capital into clean energy industries, and we know that Canada has some some that are already developed or, or developing. We have some competitive advantages. We have some local local ch players who are becoming competitive uh, here. Uh, it seems to me that we're we've got we've taken the first baby steps along the way to diversifying the Canadian economy away from you know some of our traditional reliance on on uh, hewers of wood and drawers of water. It's been a problem for Canada for a long time. This is this seems to be an, an opportunity in time, Werner, that maybe comes along, you know, once in a hundred years. I think back to like the 1920s when, when uh, uh, like I did my, my master's thesis on the transition from horses and steam to, to power farming and, you know, the internal combustion engine tractors and combines and that sort of thing. There were plenty of companies that built tractors in Western Canada. Well, not tractors so much, but combines and threshers and things like that. And so it's, and now it turned out that didn't, you know, a lot of them went, you know, failed uh, and disappeared uh, by the end of the, the 20, 1920s. But I guess my point here is that we seem to have, we have, again, uh, we have disruptive technology. And we have another opportunity to get into this game at the industrial level uh, in a way we're not just digging stuff up and sending it off to the United States or someplace else to be processed. A am I correct in that? And if I am, how long is that window likely to stay open before the opportunities, you know, industries have, uh, have formed other places and supply chains have hardened and that, that sort of thing? Well, uh we are actually seeing a significant turn. I call it the new age of electrification. Um, I call it, uh, the, it's another wave in the Schumpeterian kind of sense, but it's a new wave of electrification based on renewable energy and uh, electrification of mobility in all its forms. Now, with that underway, it's a global phenomenon. And uh, as much as we would like Canada to be a big player in this, uh, others are doing exactly the same. The United States are, uh, the European Union is, uh, China is, everybody is in on the game. And that means that uh, if you want to be a part of this uh, successful part, we need to play to our locational advantage. What is our comparative advantage in this case? Well, first of all, we have cheap electricity um, and cleaner electricity than a lot of places. So we are very attractive to be an early adopter um, whereas in other places uh, that rely on coal for electrification, um, there isn't a really strong environmental case against uh, being too fast with this uh, because they need to clean up the electricity grid first. So um, that means with um, electrification, we need to look at the cost. If we have uh, the advantage um, and can be early adopters and with a good and clean environmental conscience in this case, uh, then um, we can maybe build out some of the infrastructure faster than some others. And with that knowledge and expertise, uh, some of our companies can grow into the space maybe quicker. And, and so here, um, the, the notion is that um, if you want to be significant players, we need to be early adopters. And to be early adopters, you have to have the right conditions, both in terms of the uh, the energy supply, which is clean electricity, 
but as well as uh, with a technological base and, and capacity to actually build up um, the industry. And for example, when it comes to everything from mining activities like lithium and others, uh, Canada has the resources. We can be significant players uh, when we play to our advantage and the advantage still actually means the, the resource sector to a large extent because, hey, we are a big country and we have those resources uh, that others don't. So we can be a big player, uh, but it's often in the upstream industries and not necessarily in manufacturing cars because, hey, um, uh, there's still going to be Toyota and Volkswagen and many others out there who are going to be doing all the same as well. And uh, we're not going to be uh, the big supplier of electric vehicles because we're only uh, mostly supplying North America. So where we have our strengths, we need to leverage our strengths. And uh, that that still means um, uh, we have to look very carefully where we can be part of that supply chain successfully. Right. And uh, there are examples. I mean, uh, Quebec is building a, a battery industry and it has, of course, minerals. But what it really has in abundance is hydropower. And so you've got clean electricity and you've got, uh, you know, at a very reasonable price, I think their price, their residential rate is something like seven cents a kilowatt hour and their commercial rates are, can be even lower. So that's an incredible cost advantage right there. And so, so uh, I've interviewed, you know, uh, the director CEOs of technology companies. And I've just asked them out of curiosity, you know, when you're looking at a place to locate, uh, where does, on your list of priorities, where does clean electricity uh, fit? And they go right at the top. That, that's number one. If you're building any kind of a battery plant, anything to do with electric vehicles, uh, anything where, where the carbon intensity of, of the, uh, that goes into of the product it matters to the market, then clean electricity is has got to be number one, which then gives us a, a huge ad advantage, as you say. So I guess what what's our what's our takeaway from this uh Werner? i think we we both agree that the, you know this is a, a a turning point in in history in economic history where there's going to be a clean energy industries and supply chains are emerging so it's a tr time of tremendous opportunity um canada will i suppose you know get some uh and is that the best that we can say or is there an opportunity here for us to be more aggressive, more innovative, more entrepreneurial than we maybe have been in the past? I think it's time for governments to act strategically. And I'm actually very pleased to see that uh, provincial and federal governments have such things as hydrogen strategies and critical mineral strategies. That is exactly where we need governments to go to really think about the future carefully, not just the next electoral period, but where we're going to be 10, 15, or 20 years from now. Uh, some of that thinking is happening. Uh, resources are, of course, always scarce, and they're always priorities, and that's not going to be an easy battle for, for any uh, government. But um, when it comes to uh, setting the conditions for the future, we need to play to our advantage. That means still resources, that means clean electricity. And uh, when it comes to, for example, to building out uh, a green hydrogen, where are going to be uh, uh, electrolyzers uh, popping up? Well, where electricity is cheap, everything else equal because the cost of electrolyzers will be, you know, that will be produced globally. But where they can be installed, it will uh, be advantageous where electricity is cheap. So looking at where the future energy sources are, well, we have an abundance of um, clean energy. 
um, in addition to our uh, traditional source of energy. And we need to play to that advantage. And we can be a significant player in those industries if we understand where our comparative advantages. And as an economist, as a trade economist, um, I, I, I can only um, say that uh, trade is driven by comparative advantage. And understanding where that is for Canada is crucial, not to actually try to, to get in into industries where we do not have an advantage, but instead really focusing on where we will have a continuing comparative advantage going forward and where it can be sustained and, and uh, improved. Well, to just to wrap up our conversation, uh, Werner, this has been a very interesting chat. And my takeaway from this, uh, my take on this is that uh, certainly there's, there's stuff that we should be uh, pleased about in Canada. You mentioned the hydrogen roadmaps and strategies and critical mineral strategies. And and there are various strategies attached to the electric vehicle industry, for instance, you know, the batteries of which critical minerals is a part uh, and so on. And I wonder if compared to, to our competitors, uh, whether we're ahead or behind, could you give us just uh, your thoughts briefly uh, are we lagging or leading on our strategic approach to clean energy industrial strategy and development? In some areas, we're clearly thinking uh, like some of the best governments around the world in terms of the future that are developing such strategies. If you look at how many governments have a strategy in the hydrogen space or the electric vehicle space or in the battery space or mineral space, well, Canada is uh, is at the front of that. That doesn't mean we're uh, going to be the winners in this uh, in this new industry because uh, ultimately it does, it's decided by the market, and to be uh, the winners in that market, we have to deliver uh, superior technological product at a low cost. And whether or not we can do that really depends on whether our industry can benefit from location advantages. And so our governments need to really emphasize our location advantages, whether it's clean, cheap electricity, or whether it's uh, uh, mineral supplies and making those uh, readily available and with all the environmental uh, uh, safeguards and, and care uh, about indigenous communities, all of that needs to still come together and quickly. Uh, so there is no shortage of things government needs to do to make that happen because uh, the tremendous effort that we need to see happening means developing the scaling up uh, of these critical industries of the future. And uh, if you don't scale up uh, fast enough and we're, we're, we're lagging behind others, then we're going to lose the market. In terms of strategic thinking and the visionary thinking, I think our government's actually doing pretty well. It's uh, now being on track, actually delivering the products uh, which relies on companies and investments. Uh, that is where the new frontier is and where we need to shape up to be part of these future markets. Okay, so it's not all doom and gloom. We, we've not got something. I, I see many new opportunities. I see opportunities for, for Canada to be a significant player and to leverage our strengths, uh, but we certainly don't want to miss a boat. Uh, but I see all the governments in Canada, uh, all, all across the provincial governments and the federal government, they're all thinking about that. And that is good. I think you know, I, I can only compliment the governments for their forward thinking in, in many of these ways. Um, in, in some cases, it's companies though, uh, that are still married to their old industries and their old markets uh, that have a much harder time uh, pivoting towards these new markets than, than our governments do. So um, it's the, um, the shareholders, ultimately, that need to kind of... Uh, in, infuse 
the thinking into their boards of directors of these companies that helps uh, foster this transition and, and a focus on where the market of the future will be and not the, the markets of yesterday. Well, Werner, thank you very much for this uh, fascinating discussion as always, and we'll look forward to the next one. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. 